So genau. turn to the person next to you, say, even though. Okay, wir wollen mal zwei Worte And let's read two words here. Nehemiah 2, verse 17. Because you heard that at the March of the Nations, I spoke about Nehemiah, and I will apply some of these words. Nehemiah 2, 17. But now I said to them, as you see yourselves, Jerusalem is lies in ruins, and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let's, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And then Psalm 72, very famous Psalm, even though I will stay with you because you keep hold of my right hand, you lead me according to your righteousness and then you receive me in honor. So the word, even though, even though, uh, well, in German there is a bit of an ancient word and then there's a bit of a modern word. But this word is, makes the difference between a life of adaptation and a life that makes a difference, as insignificant as this word may seem. The word, even though, is the word that you can use to move mountains, and we will look at that in a moment. And you see the word, even though, you see, this actually encompasses everything we see with all big men and women of God or men and women who moved something in history. It makes a great difference. So we all know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says the biggest mistake you can make in your mistake is always to be afraid of making mistakes. So do, do I repeat that? The biggest mistake you can make in your life is living in constant fear of making some mistake. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he is one of the very few who actually did raise their voices in the time of National Socialism. And he said, even though, even though there might be resistance, in spite of all different resistance. So whether it was Georg Müller, who uh, started a big orphanage movement, or Winston Churchill, Martin Luther, or Theodor Herzl, who uh, organized the first uh, Zionist Congress in Basel, you always find people who did something different. These are people who did not allow circumstances to go govern their lives. And somehow it seems that somehow big things happen when these people apply this word in spite of or even though. So it's strange, isn't it, to speak about this one word? But maybe this will help you. Because we will apply this to some very personal things. Because th this will cause very decisive things to happen. So let's take a, take a look at the story of Nehemiah. I'm sure you know the story of Nehemiah. And I spoke about the broken walls of Jerusalem. I spoke about this in Jerusalem. So for everyone who was not able to be here, many of you here, just a bit of the historic background there. I can't read you all the story now, but you know that they were in uh, ca captivity in exile in Babylon 586. And then many, many from Jerusalem, from the southern kingdom were deported to exile in Babylon. And almost a hundred years later, after the first Jews had returned to Jerusalem, 
Nehemiah hears about this. He was cupbearer to the king, and he heard about the walls of Jerusalem. He heard that they were broken down and the gates burned with fire. And then we can read that the gates were left in ruins, and then he starts fasting and praying, seeking God, repenting. And then he receives permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we can read that. The city was exposed and defenseless in face of the attacks of the enemy. And also taught on some things that we often are not so aware of, is that these walls of Jerusalem were more than just the historic city walls then. But in the Bible, they represent protection, security. The walls of a city, just imagine a medieval city, right? The city walls, you find them in Europe as well. They represent identity. So when the walls were solid, the city was filled with identity. They represent values in the Bible also. And also, vice versa, if you take a look at Ezekiel 38, this speaks about the destroyed walls of Jerusalem, and they represent destruction and judgment. And so what we can also read in the Bible is that the walls of Jerusalem have a significance that is far beyond Jerusalem, because it doesn't make much sense to just speak about Jerusalem, which is interesting and important, but they also have global significance. So the walls of Jerusalem and what we read in the Bible actually has significance for every city, every society, every nation. So, when we take a look at the story of Nehemiah, it is also an example for what is happening with us. You know, the walls represent the protection that we enjoy. It represents our identity. It doesn't matter which nation we come from, whether that is Austria or Spain, South America, Iran, or Croatia. But it is about that it's protection, identity, the principles of the Word of God. It's about God himself. And now, when we hear about a wall, we all know that, it can cause or stir different kinds of emotions, not always negative emotions. Because right now, there's lots of talk about walls. Germany used to be divided between East and West. And people spoke about the wall. And if you spoke about the wall, it did not have any positive connotations. But it was a separation. It was division. It was the death strip. It was isolation. That's what you thought about. Separation. Or just a recent image, uh, last week maybe, you saw it, of the uh, border between the United States and Mexico. The father who held his two-year-old daughter, and he tried to overcome that border and to get through. So these walls are not always something positive. Or when the Bible speaks about a wall between man and God, that's about a separation between man and God. That's the wall of, of sin that's uh, pulling us asunder. And, but here in Nehemiah, the term wall has actually a very positive connotation. It's about blessing. It's about protection. The city needs to be protected. And this talks about the blessing and promise of God to return to Jerusalem for the temple to be rebuilt. And that's why we can read in Nehemiah 2 verse 13, 
Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and then he examined the walls of Jerusalem and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. And so now we learn that those ruins of the walls, they represent the fact that the love relationship to God was in ruins. And all of a sudden we realize this leads us to ourselves, right? Because the love relationship to God was in ruins. The promises, everything the Lord had said about the temple was in ruins. And faith, the faith of Israel was in ruins. They were frustrated. It was a picture of hopelessness and being paralyzed. And if you take a look at another verse, it was the ruins were so piled so high they could not make way. And I remember images of the Second World War with entire cities in ruins, and people came with wheelbarrows, and especially the, the women who were left behind, they tried to get rid of the ruins. A picture of hopelessness, how to continue. Not, no single person can do that. And because the walls had been destroyed, they were left at people's derision. You know, people would laugh at them and mock them. That is Nehemiah 2 verse 17. They are in disgrace. It says here, see, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire. And then Nehemiah says, come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And somehow there seems to be a connection, you know, if the walls are in ruins, that causes disgrace, division, mockery, all of these things. And so that was the case for Jerusalem. And it's the same image for Jerusalem 400 before Christ and the same image for the church today. If the walls of a church are broken down, the walls of a society, if they are in ruins, if they are no longer focused and built on the uh, principles and measures of the word of God, that brings disgrace and people mock it. And I'm wondering, you know, what is in between those? What is happening here? If this story really is an image for our modern day, if it can be a parable for us today, and then I see in between all that hopelessness and disgrace and mockery, I see the Hebrew word chapar, the word disgrace, mockery, this hopelessness. So in between this frustration, the I don't know what to do, the how can we possibly go about this? How can we get rid of the ruins? Between this and God's miracle, there's only one little word. And that's the word in spite or even though. In between hopelessness, and that's my message to you if you are seated here today, in between frustration and God's miracle is only one word, and this is even though, and or still. Dividing between a lack of perspective, a question of how to go about this, and God's miracle, there is the word even though or in spite of. And that's what we find with Nehemiah here. With every man of God, we find that in the Bible. With Moses, we have that. Who really failed terribly when God charged him to do something. 
He actually killed an Egyptian. His anger, he, he could not control it and had, he had to flee into the desert. And then he started a family. So I think he had actually given up on everything. For 40 years, he went to the school of God. And then you know the story about the burning bush. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Moses, go. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses said, no, I can't speak. And the Lord said, still, go. In spite of your inability, go. So the difference between a lack of perspective and hopelessness and God's promise is even in spite of so you know the story of David, a wonderful king. He, God used him so mightily and there were so many miracles. And there was one glance and that led to adultery and everything collapsed. He even loses his child because of this sin. And then he repents and he cries out to God. And then he says, and even still, even yet, even though... I am still here and I will follow you. I will build your kingdom. I will follow you. And then there is Psalm 23. Oh no, 73. That's a Psalm of Asaph. When I was a young believer, that was one of the first Psalms that I somehow really understood. I thought it was really logical. You know it immediately if I know it. So why are they godless prosperous? You know, I, th I thought this question is really good, really valid. And then it continues, I would have almost slept, you know, when I envied the arrogant and saw the prosperity of the wicked, wicked with all their big words and tongues. They intimidate people. They heap up power. So he really complains. He said, was it all for nothing? And I remember I was a teenager, 20 years old. I asked, oh Lord, was it all in vain? You know, a bit of melodramatic here, but... But verse 17, it was something I'd never found. It is, till I entered the sanctuary of God. And that is actually the key. Till I entered, I until I came into your presence, suddenly I was able to see through your eyes. And then I understood their final destiny. All of a sudden, uh, it is an end to their lives and they are cast into ruins. So that's really true. The greatest success, greatest riches, greatest striving for happiness, we heard in the testimony, it only takes... One little thing, one step, one point, and everything is over in the shortest amount of time. I saw that in my own family in the past two weeks. So when I was embittered in my spirit, when I was, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, and now a verse I really like. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Actually, what it says, I was like a dumb cattle. When I was embittered, when I was torn, I stood in front of you as if I didn't have the Holy Spirit. And now there's the turnaround. I think everyone has been in situations like that. Why are they doing so well and I'm doing like this? Torn inside. Why is that happening, God? 
Komm, hast du schon mal sowas gedacht? Did you ever think anything like that? Everyone has been in a situation like that. And then there is the situation, you know, when I was embittered. The devil tries to draw everyone into that place of bitterness. I think there is no person who has not ever been in a point like that, that he had to make a decision. What do I do? Torn up inside. But now is the turnaround. Asaf, who's turning around, the most important turnaround in his life, that is the code word to heaven here, the key to his future. Without this word, there is no miracle, there is no intervention of God. And that is the word that gets you from hopelessness and unbelief, passivity to new life. Asaf, how did you do that? And Asaf puts it into one word. He says, yet. Even though, in spite of that, in verse 23, yet I am always with you. Yet, even though I am with you, you hold me by my right hand, and yet I am always with you. What does that mean? Continuously, steadfastly with you. Do you understand now? This little word, yet, even though, in spite of, is the code word for heaven that opens the door to faith. That's a small little word, and yet this word opens the treasures of heaven to you. So my friends, there is no pathway of faith without this, that, without saying yet and even though and still. And so I was wondering, why is that? We all know and we've learned that in the Bible that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes when we read the word of God, when we hear it. And from hearing comes doing, obedience, being dependent on God. And we know, on the other hand, there's another word, that is reason. Or reasonable. So reason comes from ratio in, in Latin, and it's used as another word for thinking. It comes, it's birth out of ratio, out of the realization of my own thoughts, of pondering and thinking. But faith actually takes the God's dimension into account and says, yet and still. Because actually it takes into account God's dimension, dimension of heaven. But reason only takes into account the dimension of the visible. It is moving within the possible. And Paul says, there is a constant battle. Not the battle against enlightenment, as some suppose. It's not the battle against people. But it is the battle of faith. That's what the Word of God is speaking about. First Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Is what Paul says to Timothy. It says, take hold of eternal life that you are called for. Or second Timothy 4, verse 7. Is, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Okay? And so now here we see this code word, the key of faith. It has, well, in German it has seven letters. 
Which in English you can say three letters, Y-E-T, yet, or still, or even though. Anyway, you have this battle of faith, the fight of faith, and these two dimensions. And I will tell you more about this in a minute and why there is conflict so many times. But before I do that, I just want to remind you of a few things. So when I think about it, for instance, 50 or 40 years, well, many, many years of being a Christian, more than 30 years right here in Tübingen, all the important things in my life and our lives for Charlotte and myself, all of these things happened because we did not look to what was impossible. But with everything we did, there was always an element of impossible. You know, there's, there is no walk of faith without the voice of impossible. That just doesn't happen. So faith is nothing we are served uh, on a silver platter, you know. But it's only possible if we live with this yet or still or even though. Most of you know my testimony, you know, I got saved as a teenager and then took my first steps with the Lord. But I still remember even just the invitation to go to a service to a church was just a revolution in my life. My father was a Freemason. My grandfather was a Freemason. I grew up in a Masonic home. I was raised in a humanistic way, and I'm very grateful for a very whole family. But suddenly God broke in because Christians had been praying for me, and they tried to convince me that I was not saved, in fact. And just this by itself gave, left me with the decision of either running away or staying with it. And I still remember, I wanted to run away. I was so upset. I said, oh, these Christians, they are so arrogant. They want to tell me that I don't really believe. I was convinced they were wrong. So my entire life was revolutionized. And every time when I had those many different little decisions, I had to say, and yet, and still. I remember when I was invited to join a service for the first time. And I also remember I was taught to read in the Bible. I was taught that the Bible is the word of God. That was something inconceivable. To me, that was just a dusty old book somewhere on a shelf. The only prayer I knew was, please, God, help me to get into heaven. And all of a sudden, I was supposed to read in the Bible. I still remember I took the Bible and looking at it from all sides as if it was something mysterious, started reading it, and then I had to make that decision. And yet, I will do it. I still remember looking at the Bible and, oh dear, what will my brothers and sisters think now, you know, if they catch me reading a Bible now? If they catch me with a Bible, what will I do? And I had the decision to do, no, and I will still do it and put the Bible on my nightstand. And I'm so grateful for all the Christians who taught me to stand by my faith. They said, if you don't stand by your faith, if you don't admit that you are a Christian now, you will lose your faith. And praise the Lord for them that they taught me because it, that would have happened. They have taught me to stand by my faith. They taught me what it means to have a clear content, conscience, to get my life right with God and to be very straightforward with us. And persistent. And all voices of reason tell you, oh, Jobs, that's not necessary. And then the religious voices, is, oh, well, you've received forgiveness long ago. Nobody's interested. But actually, God says something completely different. He says, come on, change. 
and still, yet, do it. I still remember everything in me was crying no to go to someone. And then that was a teacher of old people. Uh, and I was supposed to go to him. The Lord told me, go to him, talk to him. And everything in me was saying no. And yet, God said, do what I tell you. So all of your faith life, your walk in faith starts with your first decision to have a very childlike prayer, giving your life to Jesus. And it's always a decision, and yet I will do it, because all other voices will always be against it. And then we met Charlotte and I, and it was the decision to start a relationship according to God's principles. And still, and yet... If somebody gets married today, that is their decision against the principles of this world. Yet, still do it. Or to raise a family, children. That's a decision against the egotism of this world to say, and yet we will. And we realize that actually affects all areas of our life. Also, when the Lord gave us a calling and he didn't say to us, you can work in my kingdom and whether you do it or not, that's all right. Maybe, perhaps, uh, you can get some money somewhere else as well. No. God's calling is something sacred. God set us apart. There is a calling into full-time ministry, and I'm so grateful for all the missionaries who are here. This is something that is holy, sacred to the Lord. And I still remember when we walked through Salzburg and we looked at the windows there, we were in our mid-twenties, and we knew the Lord wanted us to serve Him full-time, to be dependent on Him. And we looked at the windows, the shops in, in Salzburg, don't know whether it was jewelry, First, whatever. We didn't understand the goodness of God, that he's a rich provider. And that was good because the Lord wanted us to be willing to do anything, to be rich or poor. And we said, Lord, all of this we surrender to you. And yet it is the greatest privilege to serve you. So everything that God did was born out of this yet, out of this decision. And I still remember the Lord taught us how to deal with money, how to give, how to tithe. That wasn't just something that happened, but it was our decision. We said, we do not look to the visible around us. We say, we will yet believe you, despite everything else. We will believe you. And my friends, I could spend all afternoon and all evening sharing about how the Lord spoke to us about planting or starting a church because we didn't want to start a church. And we said, in this theological fortress of Tübingen, people will be enraged and yet do it. And now we celebrate 20 years of Toss Ministries International. On the outside, it looks really nice and finished, but it happened just with a few young people who went to Minsk and spent two weeks seeking God and then went over to Buenos Aires seeking God and saying, saying still despite the facts despite the circumstances it started with people who sold houses and possessions who sold their cars and only this is how the ministry was possible to start it sounds all very nice now but it starts with 
despite, and yet, and also the March of Life movement. It wasn't just something that happened. But every year, I still, yet, and yet I will invest my strength, my time, writing the book, The Veil of Silence. My family can testify, testify how much of a struggle it was writing that. And yet, I will do it. And also, you can share the story. So many who joined the March of the Nations, you know, the money, I don't know how to get it together, but still we will pray, still we will go. This still and yet, that is something that moves the arm of God, because all the miracles, all the ministry is released through this, and always begins with the same way. God is asking you, he speaks to you, you believe him, you trust him, and from hearing his voice, from trusting him, You say, despite all resistance, yes, and still. And I shared this story in Jerusalem already. When Charlotte and I were in Lüdenscheid, it was the first cell group that we ever had. It started growing quite quickly, 18 people from really a great variety of backgrounds. And then someone came who had a very prophetic gift, Don Kirkby from New Zealand. He started prophesying about us. He didn't know us, but he said, I have sent you like Nehemiah to build the broken walls of Jerusalem. I still have it written down in my Bible. And I didn't understand a word. I said, what? We're building the walls of Jerusalem? What does that mean? By now, I've learned it doesn't matter what we do, irrespective of where we're at, whether you're at school or a student, whether you're a businessman or in your family. The Lord is always waiting for this still and yet. And if you don't reach the point where the Lord is asking you for something and you're wondering to say, and still and yet, the Lord will want to lead you there because that's what faith is all about. Our walk of faith is for us always to expand our territory. Our walk of faith is the Lord asking us to do something that I think, oh, I'm not sure whether I can do this. And the Lord says, no, you can't do that. I'm just asking you to do it. And because of faith, it will happen. And then you can read in Nehemiah, and the wall was finished halfway up. And my friends, and that's why I, I preach this message, I'm so grateful for this church, I'm so grateful for the gifts, I'm grateful for everyone who's here. You're an amazing church, I'm so proud of this church. But here, the wall has only reached half of its height. And the calling that the Lord has given us has not reached its end yet. You know, the wall goes up to half the height here in Tübingen or in, the, in society, in historic research. The wall has reached half its height, even all the blessing that goes out from Tübingen. We are here in the city because God has given calling to the city. And because of that calling, the blessing of the March of the Nations has spread to the nations. The Lord has been speaking about this in great detail. But it's only halfway up.
And you know, with Nehemiah, when they had rebuilt the wall, there were three people. One of them was Sanballat, and the other one was Tobiah, and then there was Geshem. And these three, they resisted, and they were mocking, and they were putting out rumors, and they were manipulating, and all of these things. And I tell you, the Sanballats, Tobias, and Geshems, let them mock, let them deride, but you go and build the kingdom of God. And then we see the Lord is laughing at them. And he says, remain remain firm and say, yet, and still, still I will remain with you. And yet I will remain. You are someone called to produce miracles. And between frustration and passivity and paralysis and God's miracle, there's only one yet, one still. I think we've understood that now, right? You have this yet and still. So let's take another look at the ruins in today's time. And if we were to look at that, we could be really frustrated in some areas anyway. Just during the exhibition alone, um, it's an exhibition uh, against anti-Semitism. And there were posters speaking on the significance of the kippah and everything. And just while we had this exhibition in, in Leipzig, there were three other German cities, three other German cities where uh, people came and attacked Jewish people, beating the kippah pass of their heads. And the German, uh, Israeli newspaper said Jews leave Germany. Or a German newspaper said France has entered the post-Christian era. There is more children born out of wedlock than children born in families in France. And the name Mary in France has been replaced by the name Mohammed now as name number one. And the burning of Notre Dame is seen as a symbol. That's not my opinion, but the journalists write that as, as a symbol of the demise of Christianity in France. And my friends, I don't want to see that happening in Germany. God's a God of renewal, a God of the second chance. But we are living in a time of a dramatic change of values here in Europe. And this is a fact. It's a change of values away from Judeo-Christian values to new liberal, liberal ecological values. And my friends, if you speak about sin today, it doesn't speak actually about sin against the living God. But I read more about sins in ecology, ecological sins, than actually sin that separates man from God. And for me, that's really strange. It's a kind of new pantheism. N worship of nature. And I'm wondering, who actually determines our thoughts? Who tells us what to think? Who determines what you and I think? And that gets us to the destroyed walls that are in ruins now. Who determines that? Who determines the values of our lives? You know, we always follow someone. We will always follow someone and be influenced one way or the other. But who do we follow? Will we follow a 15-year-old girl, Frida Thunberg? Do we follow the ideology of this, this day and this age? Do we follow the rules? 
of our reasoning that we define ourselves. I've just uh, seen that with my own eyes. People who don't know Jesus, who don't know God, they have their own religious concoction and they are so convinced that this is truth, that this is right. Something that I have come up with, something that I've read, found maybe with some philosophers and I follow that. Or will I, on the other hand, follow the living God, whose word is life and truth, who actually made history with his people Israel, who fulfilled his very own words? Whom will I follow? Sometimes... Christians are ashamed of saying, I do believe in the God of the Bible, because they're afraid to be considered naive. Oh yeah, they are still very backward. They are kind of stuck in the Middle Ages. And I think Martin Luther nowadays would actually be excluded from some churches because he would be much too radical. Martin Luther, how can you say the Bible by its very nature is the word of God? Confessing Jesus Christ as the word made flesh, the Bible is the foundation of Christian faith. Hello, did you know that? It's the word of God. So the difference between someone who follows Jesus or who just lives with Christian dead religion is the still or the yet of faith despite all resistance, despite all the mockery. Despite, even those, despite all those glances, you know, oh, you are naive. Despite all the vision, you know, that's nothing new. It's nothing for this day only. Even Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, says, in Philippi we were mistreated, we suffered much. And so you can really read what Paul had been through. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was in prison. And so, and still, in our God, we found faith to proclaim you, the, to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. You know, sometimes it's so easy to be defined by our experiences, but the word of God and Paul says, no, despite all of this, we continue. And I will slowly come to an end. Says, come and let us rebuild the walls. That is the still and yet of faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? I had promised that in closing we would take a look at this uh, seeming contradiction between reason and faith. So there is a, a battle, a competition between faith and, and reason. And reason keeps accusing faith, and maybe you've been accused of this yourself, or you don't just think, you just don't think for yourself. And so, my friends, please understand me correctly. I'm not saying anything against thinking, against intelligence. I'm not speaking against the advantages of enlightenment. I'm speaking about something else. There's a fight of faith. 
fight, we need to fight. And reason always says, if you are dependent on the living God, if you want to be obedient to God, if you truly believe that God is speaking today, you are just so naive. You are still caught up in the Bronze Age somewhere. You are in the Middle Ages. You have no idea. And this is exactly what happened for Nehemiah. It was the battle, the fight between Sanballat, Nehemiah and, and Geshem. You are building the walls of Jerusalem? Ha, ha. You don't know that stones are burnt. And if you want to build the walls, a fox only has to jump on it and everything collapses. So reason is always upset with faith. So that's strange, isn't it? You can't really prevent it. Remiah 3 verse 11 is Sambalat was angry when he heard the walls were being built. Why was he so angry? Why was he upset? 1 Corinthians 1.23 Paul says, we preached Christ the crucifixion, Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and a, a reason of division to the Greek. Anyone ever told you? Oh, in Tos, they're just so stupid. They're stupid. They're, they're not intelligent. Well, some people think that. Not everyone. But sometimes we have that. I don't know. I've been told this before. Maybe you have. Even in my own family, they told me this. And then it says, 1 Corinthians 1.25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than God's wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human beings are. So what was that with Jesus? Do you still remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Just before he was crucified, Jesus was struggling and battling. He was deserted by all his di disciples. And then he was sweating drops of blood. And he said, Father, if it's possible, please let this cup pass me by. So that is humanly speaking. Father, can't you spare me from this? And then it says, and still. Not what I want. He says, Father, not what I want, but your will be done. That is a mark of faith. And so we are sitting here because Jesus took that decision to do the will of the Father, not to look to the circumstance. He would have had to say but one word, and all the legions of heaven would have come, but he didn't do that. He said, still, and yet, Yet not my will, but yours be done. And you know, reason always battles against the fact that it's depending on God. You know, that's the very nature of uh, enlightenment. To the est estrangement from God, estrangement from the dependency on God. Because man's an estrangement of people who say, I want to follow Jesus and be obedient to him. And that gets us to a few points and then we'll pray. I promised that we would make this very practical and apply to our own lives because each one of us always reaches a certain point. doesn't matter where it is, whether it is as a follower of Jesus, you take your first steps as a believer, you know Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God, you are in the process of reorganizing your priorities to make your life count and honor God, and 
you know about the pure conscience living as children of the light? And you say, yes, that is your free will decision. It's your freedom. And then you say, and yet I will do it. I want it. All other voices might tell you something else. No, don't do that. Don't be so extreme. You don't have to give your life to Jesus. I tell you, half a believer is a complete disaster. And we have so many people now here in the churches who live a halfway Christian life because they took that word out of the Bible. And this yet is also true for your future, for the plans you make. How do you want to stand before the living God? You're planning your future as a business person. You're planning for, on a good wage. You're planning your future that you might be able to buy a car or might be able to buy a house, an apartment. But how do you want to stand before God? You're planning on maybe having children. And then how will you stand before him? If all of this is not focused on the living God, on serving Him, then you have lived your life in order to please people and please yourself, but you can't keep the fruit in your hand. This yet of future, and still I will give myself to you. You give me your blessing and everything else has to submit. You are taking first place. The word of God says, if our house is built on sand, and this house is our life, our future, our family, if that is built on sand, the only takes one storm and everything collapses. But if we are built on the rock, and so every decision about your time is a decision of yet. Do you know, we never have time for God. That's really strange, isn't it? We never have time for prayer. We never really have time. Why? Because there's this battle of faith. We have to say yet or still every time. Every decision, every ethical decision in your job, how you deal with lying, with money, with uh, things funneled by the tax authorities, things that are not pleasing to God. And yet, and so you see how it practical this becomes even for our families, our marriages. And my friends, maybe some might laugh about it, but the decision to have children in this time is a clear step of faith. It's a yet decision, because we live in a time when children are sacrificed to the uh, idea of, of career, of job, security, and finances. And that's not what God has planned. Yet. And what is God's counter-program? Hello, I've got good news for you. You are called, we are called, to build the walls of Jerusalem. You are called to build the walls of Jerusalem. Tell that to the person next to you. Because that is God's counter-program. Are you still listening? Not asleep yet, right? So turn to the person next to you and ask them, hey, you awake? Will you give me another five minutes? Okay, five, okay. five minutes. Okay. Five times five minutes? 
Yeah, und die Gemeinde okay. the church that is God's counter program to the egoism of this time. God's builders, everyone is called. And so turn to the person next to you and tell them, you make the difference. And turn to the other person next to you and then you say, still and yet. For every decision in your life. Every decision. So, jetzt gehen wir den nächsten so now Kapitel, ganz we durch. take the next 10 chapters of Nehemiah very quickly. First point. Am Bau Gottes wird jeder gebraucht. Everyone is needed keine, for building God's kingdom. So there is no, not a single person who can build the walls of Jerusalem by themselves. It was the priests, the goldsmiths and everyone. So turn to the person next to you and tell them, you are needed. Second point. Du musst dich aus einer Komfortzone you need to lassen, actually step out of your comfort zone Zone, into the zone where the, ki the kingdom of God is built. So turn to the person next to you and tell them, step out of your comfort zone. The Lord is calling you to the ruins of the city. Third point. They remove the ruins. So you need to be willing to get rid of all the debris. So be willing to clear out the stones. That's what we do through the Veil of Silence seminars. When we speak about the sins of the fathers and forefathers, where we humble ourselves in identificational repentance. So tell the person next to you, clear away the rubble. Fourth point. They were not deterred by derision and mockery. So Tell the person next to you, don't be deterred. Point five, Nehemiah 4 verse 12, they were praying and working, praying and working. And there was someone with a trumpet and they listened to the trumpet. So tell the person next to you, work and pray and be aware, be vigilant. Point six, they preferred God's goals to their own goals. So tell the person next to you, prefer God's goals over your own goals. Point seven, they served one another. So repeat that, serve one another. Point eight, they finished the wall. Say, we need to finish the wall. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They reestablished the word of God. Repeat after me. We established the word of God again. And then the other ones I won't let you repeat. Point nine. They confessed their sin. Nine, nine. That's amazing. First of all, they finished the wall. Then they confessed their sin. They, and with Ezra, they reestablished the word of God. And they confessed the word of God. They confessed their sin. And then in closing, they commit to obeying God. So, repeat after me, they committed to obeying God. That's Nehemiah 10, verse 14. We will not reject or neglect the house of our God. You know, because if the house of God is neglected, that is the beginning for the destroyed walls of Jerusalem, if the house of God, the church, the church of Jesus, if that is neglected, that's the beginning for the walls of the city or nation 
to fall into ruins. And after that, the service and the country, the land was renewed. I believe the Lord has great plans for our nation because where darkness is great, light will become much greater. We're living in one of the most crucial times of all ages. So we are challenged as the Church of Jesus, but also on a very personal level to say, it doesn't matter where you are, and yet still. So let's all stand and we'll pray together.